Бої жорсткі, але наш рух є. І це дуже важливо. Втрату ворога саме такі, як нам потрібно. Я дякую за це кожному, хто зараз в бою, кожному, хто підтримує наші бойові бригади на відповідних напрямках. Ukraine's long-awaited counter-offensive gathers steam as troops probe Russian defenses and claim some modest gains in the south and the east. Russia continues to attack Ukrainian cities and target civilians with missile and drone attacks, and Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, darkly hints that he may launch a new offensive of his own, potentially aimed at Kyiv. Nearly 16 months into Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the war is entering a decisive new phase. What can we expect and what should we be looking for? Well, I've got just the guests to answer these and other questions, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Fowles Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTM McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand and joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Cannon Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael is also the host of the new Russia Contingency podcast on War on the Rocks. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Good to see you, and happy birthday, by the way. Thanks for having me back. Glad, glad to have you and glad you can join us on your birthday. Uh, so, Michael, in recent remarks to The New York Times, you said the following about Ukraine, the unfolding Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, this is just days in. You said this isn't something you judge based on a few days of fighting. The offensive will play out over weeks and likely months. That said, we're roughly a week into the counteroffensive and some data points are beginning to accumulate. On your podcast on War in the Rocks this week, you said that Ukraine's early gains are not insignificant, and that by advancing on more than one axis, Ukraine is trying to set up some dilemmas for the Russian military. I'd be interested in hearing what, you, what kind of dilemmas you, you, you have in mind here. You also note that Ukraine has not committed the bulk of its forces and have yet to reach Russia's main lines of defense. And you suggest that once Ukraine determines which axis is the most lucrative for them, we may expect them to commit the bulk of their forces to that axis. Now, you made these mark remarks earlier this week, Michael. Um, so could you unpack and update this for us a bit as we're recording on Friday and you made those remarks on Monday? How do you see the offensive unfolding at this point? Okay. So first, I think all those thoughts that I had, which are meant to be very early impressions, still hold because I haven't changed my mind about any of that. And I've been pretty upfront that we need a lot of caveats here, Brian, because uh, as an offensive unfolds, right, we have pretty limited visibility to the battlefield, and everything we see often shows up a day or a couple of days late. So you just need to be upfront about that conversation. And we, you know, are recording this on Friday. So by the time this comes out, some other events or developments may happen that will already uh, that that we may not be able to account for. That said, I think that in in the initial sort of stage of this offensive. Uh, what we can see is there are three principal axes that Ukraine is using to try to pressure Russian forces. The first one was the localized counterattack at Bakhmut, which began back in May, and that looked increasingly uh, as intended to be a fixing action. The second was the attack along the Vidika Novosilka axis for pushing south. That's actually been the one that's been the most successful thus far, and this started a bit over maybe 10 days ago. 
Uh, and that's and, in the direction of Melitopol, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, no. Melitopol is the third axis I'm going okay. to get to. The vehicular okay. Nova axis is is pushing south, but it's quite east uh, where Melitopol okay. is. Right? So if, if you're thinking about it, it's more towards uh, the edge of southwestern Donetsk and Zaporizhia uh, Oblast. And then the third axis, which started a few days after that, was the push towards Tukmark. This is essentially the Rehiv axis, which pushes towards Tukmark, which is the city. With, it's a ring city and heavily fortified with three lines of defenses in front of it, which is the city you have to bypass or, or capture or get through in order to get to Miyotopo. All right. So what what I think we can say, and, and for those kind of listening to this, I think sometimes it might be a little easier to pull up a map, right, to, to just sort of follow along because two reasons. One, a lot of folks may not be as familiar with the territory or the towns, um, and it's not easy. As I often joke, you know, a third of the towns in Ukraine are named Mikolaevka, so as a military analyst, it's not, it's not even easy to myself to follow. And, I, and I'm from Ukraine, and I don't know a lot of these places so originally, so... So it's not I'm not I'm not from this part I'm not from this part of Ukraine. Just being very very upfront. So it's not like I know um from Makarivka or, or so I've ever been to uh to these towns, just be frank on that. So that being said, um what what I think we can see is that the initial offensive is is gone uh, uh I'm trying to think the best way to put it from my point of view. It's gone slowly. It's looking a lot closer to Kherson and the way the Ukraine offensive in Kherson began than Kharkiv. That's evident at this stage. So it's, it's not going to be first day, big gains, Russian forces rapidly outflanked, trying to retreat, routing, collapsing. All right. That said, this offensive is likely going to proceed in phases. What Ukrainian forces have been trying to do, from my point of view, and this is just one analyst impression. I always make clear I'm, I'm not in the Ukrainian general staff looking at the big board, so to speak, right? Is that they're trying to set up a dilemma for the Russian military, pressuring them at least on three different axes. I don't think they were successful as they probably hoped to be initially, pushing uh, south from Rikhev towards Robotina, but uh, it looks like they're slowly making progress. They made, they've had a number of gains that are, that are non-significant, pushing south from the of Vasilka, capturing a bunch of towns. Um, on their kind of approach to Saramulivka. So my sense of it is that it's still quite early days, right? What we can tell is that the way this is going is well within the bounds of expectations. Question is whose expectations? So mm -hmm. I think the areas analysts looking at this knew that this was going to be very difficult, that the Russian military had an extensive prepared defense. There are kilometers upon kilometers of minefields, multiple of them. The Ukrainian forces have been just pushing Russian initial lines or forward lines, and Russians had a, quite a number of units conducting uh, not just forward defense, but also maneuver defense and counterattacking in some places, especially along the Vyikonovasilka axis. They've not reached the main line yet. I think we're not going to see the main push until Ukrainian forces reach the main line of Russian forces. And the bulk of the Ukrainian uh, force available for this offensive is still being held in reserve. And I, I folks should need to be very careful when they see footage of combat loss, and there'll be plenty of footage of combat losses. There's no way around it. And this is going to be a costly offensive. But to understand, one, that they're not necessarily sh seeing a broadly representative share of the fighting that's taking place, and also that much of the Ukrainian military remains 
reserve and that it's still early days. I think even though there's been a lot of intense fighting, that's an important point to make. Yeah, you seem to be suggesting that they're they're probing now and trying and, and when they figure out where the weak spot is, then they're going to commit their forces. Would that would that be accurate? Uh, the way I would put it is 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 slightly different, Brian. I would say that they are advancing on a fairly broad front and they're trying to pressure multiple axes. And I think they're going to look to see where the Russian military commits reserves. Right. And then assess where the Russian line is weakest to break through. They're not probing. They are trying to push through Russia's initial line of defenses. But they are doing it with multiple brigades on multiple fronts. All right? And they're trying to essentially extend the Russian military, understanding that while the Russian armed forces have layers of prepared defenses, some areas stronger, other areas weaker, the hardest push was going to be from Arikiv. That's where the Russian military expected it the most. 58th Army had been sitting there prepared with multiple lines of defenses and had been relatively unscathed compared to other forces that had been fighting over the course of the winter. So it's always going to be hard. That's sort of um, perhaps the most expected vector of attack and directly into the main defenses of your opponent. But in general, I think the... The Ukrainian bet might be, and it's just my own interpretation, that the Russian military doesn't have that much in terms of operationally available reserves that they can deploy. Mm -hmm. And that once they deploy them and they commit somewhere, then Ukrainian forces can assess where there's an opportunity. And so it's not a probing, it's a steady advance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And what you're also not seeing, there's an important fight taking place, I just want to add this. There's a very significant attritional battle unfolding between both sides that is playing out uh, both in in terms of uh, close range fight and deep battle with with lots of artillery and counter battery fire uh, fires and battles taking place, a lot of precision strike. Ukrainian forces using HIMARS systems as counter battery fire. Russian units using Lancet threes and the other types of uh, drone attacking munitions against Ukrainian artillery. So there's, a, so there's a fair amount of attrition taking place, and it seems like the territory is not changing that significantly mm -hmm. control, but what you're missing probably is what's happening to the two forces in the interaction. Mm -hmm. Any indication who's winning that attritional battle? Uh, I wish I could tell this from uh, sitting here in Washington, D.C., but I can, I can say that you're seeing both sides doing that have not been, had not been prominent in the fighting. Uh, over the past couple of months and back in the fall. So on the one hand, you see Ukrainian military being more effective at reconnaissance beyond ranges where they could normally target things and being pretty pretty effective at counter-battery fire, which I think is is creating real challenges for the Russian military, which you know is very fire-dependent, both for offense right. and defense, right? So artillery arm. All right. On the other hand, you see that on kind of different different parts of of uh, this front, you see the Russian military much more actively using rotor radiation, combat helicopters, attacking Ukrainian units that are trying to punch through with anti-tank guided missiles, particularly at night. This exposes certain deficits that Ukrainian forces have. One of the most clear-cut ones is a deficit in short-range air defense, particularly night-capable all-weather systems. They just don't have enough to cover the force, right? They have a large force they're attacking with. They've, they've, Used up a lot on the front. They have at least three axes they're pushing in. They also need the air defense to cover key of the capital. And remember, for for quite a few months since the Russian strike campaign began back in the fall, I've been talking about how one of the biggest issues would be maintaining availability of air defense for Ukraine. 
avoiding a dilemma where they can either defend the cities or defend the front, but not both, and avoiding a situation where in in a major offensive that Russian air power then comes back into play mm -hmm. as a significant countering factor because the air defense just is not available to cover these units. Yes, they have Western armored fighting vehicles, right? But but the other things you need to to make that operation a success are desperately in short supply. Right, and that's the, that 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 that's the air power and the air defense piece. I want to drill a little bit into your uh, we were talking about trying to get. Russia to commit their reserves. I wanted to drill into that a bit because I, I find that interesting. And uh, Jack Watling had a piece for RUSI, the Royal United Service Institute, that I know we both have read, where he writes the following. Ukraine are the Ukrainians are trying to get the Russians to commit the reserves, moving troops from the third defense line to bolster sectors under pressure. Once these troops are pulled forward, it'll become easier to identify the weak points in the Russian lines where a breakthrough will not be met by a new screen of repositioned forces. This kind of scans with what you were you were saying there. Can you can you drill into that a, 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 a little bit more uh, on that? I'm getting the the, the 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 reserves from the from the from the farther back lines to commit. Sure. Well, you know, great minds think alike, and so do mining jacks. Apparently, <laughs> what, what, what I could say on that is that um, basically, you know, by by pressuring the Russian military and also trying to fix some percentage of their forces of Bakhmut. I think the Ukrainian armed forces are trying to take advantage of the fact that it's still a pretty big front, right? The Russian armed forces, you know, they have much higher density in terms of units deployed relative to the terrain. They have big lines. Those lines look great on the map, but they have to be manned. Okay, like trenches, you need to put people in them. I'm being, I'm being a bit, um, right. a bit basic in the way I'm explaining this. No, but, that's, but we're so, yeah, everybody's not a military analyst, so that's good. Right. right. So, so that means that if uh, a considerable amount of, let's say, manpower or forces are attrition in these early weeks of fighting, right? Then eventually the Russian military is forced to hold these main lines. Then they are forced to deploy what reserves they have available to man these lines. Then Ukrainian uh, units will have an opportunity for, you know, a real breaching operation potentially to break through and exploit at some part of the line, especially if they've advanced on a broader front. Why? Because the lines won't be so deep. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, there'll be nobody, because there'll be few forces available to counter them once they break through, right? And then they'll they'll have the opportunity to actually get past the line and create a real, a real operational dilemma for the Russian military. And also, again, because uh, it'll be clear where the Russian line is weaker, once more units are committed to essentially holding it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the and and the the strategy is best I can understand it. And this, again, my own interpretation. Is the Ukrainian military is trying to advance on a fairly broad front through the initial defenses rather than narrowly breach them because they don't have the element of surprise, right, Brian? This is the most expected right. offensive that, ever. You know, I, yeah, I gotta say ever, but but let's say let's say everybody expects this offensive, and anybody everybody knew where it was going to be, right? Are you surprised by where it is? No, no, okay, nope, it's going exactly where I expected it. Okay, all right, so so that surprised me because I expected them to do something. Yeah, you know. so so were the Russians, and that's why the mainline defenses are all there, right? That's why they built them, right? So so everybody understands this part of it. What's where the 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 dilemma comes in, right, is how do you take an offensive operation that the opponent expects that they have prepared for? Defense is always easier uh, than offensive land warfare. Just need to get that 
right. out the gate, right? It's a lot easier to defend than to attack. That's the reality. Um, so, so the Russian military has the easier job in uh, this current situation compared to the position it was in in the winter when they were trying to be the ones that were conducting this unsuccessful offense. So, with that in mind, I think the main challenge is how can they advance to the initial lines of defenses on a broad enough front so that when they get to the main line, the Russian military is still not sure where the break is necessarily going to be. And I think that was part of the reason why Ukrainian forces were pushing both Arikiv and Vyika Novosilka at the same time and creating pressure at Bakhmut. Right? This, this way, even though the Russian military knows where the offensive is going to be, generally speaking, and they know the potential objectives of the offensive, what they may not know is where Ukraine is going to commit the bulk of its forces when it comes down to it. And that's important. Right. So, and, and when can we expect to see this unfold? If this is the scenario that does indeed unfold, are we talking weeks, months? When, when do we expect to start to see this action that you're anticipating and describing now? All right. So two answers. First, it's contingent, depending on how right. things go and the progress the Ukrainian military makes. It's not like, it's like they have a date and if they don't make a particular date, they have to say, oh, well, we, we were going to supposed to be at a certain place by July. And if we don't make it, we're going to go home for the rest of the year. That's not going to happen. Right. right. So, so that's point one, that it depends on how this goes. So if it goes slower than expected, which, you know, plans rarely survive first contact with opposing force. A lot of things go wrong, right? And you just adapt and adjust. And the force that's, that's more adaptable, more resilient, had better heads built into the strategy is usually the one that's, that's able to prevail. The second I think I'll answer is that this offense is going to play out over weeks, if not a couple of months. Why? First, history is an imperfect guide, but most of the offensives in this war that we've seen have lasted two or three months, right? The Russian winter offensive that we just saw started the last week of January and had culminated probably around April, right? The Ukraine offensive in Kherson began right at the end of August and it lasted to around, I'd say, middle of November, right? Even the kind of blowout success that Kharkiv was, right, still lasted quite a few weeks, I think quite longer because it includes the Battle of Liman than folks tend to remember. And the Russian campaign for the Donbass, the Donetsk River Offensive that took place last spring, I mean, that begins essentially uh, beginning of April and it lasts uh, all the way through June into July. So you, I think I think folks need to be patient in, in any assessments. I think where it will be, there will be a point to judge what is going to happen in this offensive is when we see Ukrainian military commit the bulk of their forces, attempt to breach the Russian main line, and then and then it'll be clear within a few, within literally a couple of days, which way this is going to go. Right now, it just isn't. And people will think that, well, the first days in an offensive operation are the decisive days. The answer is that's not true, and it all depends. It depends on what, it depends what both sides are trying to do. It depends quite a bit on their plans. And the big question is, okay, is this where the Ukrainian military hope to be at this point? I I think I I I I'm not sure. I'll be honest. My personal interpretation is probably not. But that's not the important question. Is this within sort of the realm of expectations, right? Because hopes often don't come together in in war or or in any campaign you plan. Is this within the realm of expectations? And is it too early to judge the way this is going to go? I think that's absolutely true. I think this is well within the bounds of expectations. And we're now no, we're nowhere near a position to judge 
that this offensive is going to be either a tremendous success or if it's going to be a failure. And I think that's the most that's the most honest uh, position one can take. Yeah, and I want to drill down on those expectations because you you made up in your podcast this week. You made a, a point here. You said you need to make a distinction between our expectations for the yeah. offensive versus Ukraine's expectations for the offensive. Kind of unpack that a little bit. I mean, when we're talking about our expectations, you mean us as outside analysts, us as Western governments, uh, and, and what are what? How do you think? Where do you think Ukraine's expectations are as opposed to ours? Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction. I think one one uh, thing that the conversation of the last two weeks reveals, which to be honest is not really news to me, is that there's a very substantial gap between the expectations of military analysts who've been following this war and how they thought this offensive operation would go, and that of commentators and other folks whose assumptions about uh, what the early days of this offensive would look like uh, I think now have been quite challenged. I don't want to say disproven because I might be a bit too strong, but that they probably had a different read on what the early days of this operation, uh, what, what, what the gains might be. And let me unpack that a little bit. So first, on analytical judgments, what matters is what the Ukrainian performance has been relative to their planning and their expectations, right? Question of timeline, question of forces left available, ammunition left available, and where they are in the plans, and sort of the the trade space within their own planning. We don't know what that is. We have to be honest about it. So the first question is, is this within the realm of Ukrainian expectations of where they thought they might be, right? That's, that's to me, first most important point. Uh, second, and the reason I make that point is because you don't know what the objectives were. You don't know what the timetables were. So what are you yeah. judging this on the basis of? The way you wore a game that out on your kitchen table? Right? I mean, right. That's a very, that's just a very frank point. I mean, what are you comparing this to? Um, and, and you know, like Kherson, I think Ukrainian military was Kherson assuming that that would be probably at least a two-month-long campaign. And, and it's not surprising. I mean, it was a very, very difficult fight, but... Uh, to me, at the very least, I can say it's looking closer to that than anything else, at least right now. Mm. Now, next, on, on our own judgments. So two points. First, I think uh, analysts assume this is going to be very difficult, that the challenge posed by Russian defenses, entrenchments, minefields would be significant. A lot would come down to force employment. It would be a hard task for the proof of concept that Ukrainian units uh, with Western equipment, Western training, could engage in more efficient uh, form of warfare that has combined arms maneuver, right. better synchronization between infantry, armor, artillery, rather than being an artillery-heavy fight, right, that is largely attritional. I think in some areas that was successful, in the other areas it was not, and to some extent it's too early to judge the performance of the new brigades. They have already committed the heavy units. We saw 47th Brigade attempt uh, pretty significant advances in the Riga for access. And we've seen 37th push from the Yiganevisilka along with some other units. So that said, I think that some commentators basically laid out this picture that, well, the Russian military is near the verge of collapse, that this is going to be like a hot knife through butter, that Ukrainian forces mm -hmm. are just got punched through. And a lot of us politely, I think on the local side, either stayed quiet or 
were trying to manage expectations. And most importantly, so were the Ukrainians. If you remember in the run-up to this, pretty much anybody who was anybody in the Ukrainian establishment was trying to manage expectations, mm -hmm. making it clear it was going to be difficult, waiting. You saw Ukrainians wait through May. The timetable for the offensive looked like it kept slipping to the point that people were asking, when is it going to start, right? Right. I think the reason for that is because they, they wanted to get ready. They wanted more equipment. They wanted more ammunition. They needed more time. So there, are, there are concrete reasons for that because they knew this was going to be quite hard. And so to folks like me, this is well within the realm of expectations, right? We knew that there can be a lot of challenges with low availability of breaching equipment, demining equipment, logistics, air defense. And it would be hard just to organize a, a series of uh, offensives on multiple axes at the same time. And it just wasn't clear what the state of the Russian forces were. They were visibly to some extent exhausted. But as I often say, Brian, we, we struggle to account for soft factor, soft factors and intangibles. You know, if we could count intangibles, we would call them tangibles. That's the reality. So <laughs> there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of things we don't know and cannot count the way we count tanks. Right. And and likewise, the, the U.S. government seemed to be tampering down expectations in in the run up to this as well. Um, I um, we you talked a bit about the, the problem with air defense, the problem with the lack of air power on the Ukrainian side. Those F-16s aren't going to get to Ukraine for months um, and the, the pilots aren't going to be trained up on them. Is there anything that can be provided now that would that would tip that balance in Ukraine's favor? Is, is there is there anything else we could be doing here? that would because that seems to be the big ukrainian weak spot right now yeah so i i think he, when it comes to uh any any complex systems or platforms probably for this offensive it's at this point uh late or too late i uh -huh. think that ukraine has been provided a sort of uh, a trench of artillery ammunition and equipment and most of the equipment that they are going to be using has either arrived is already deployed in these brigades or is arriving in country now or has just arrived in country right so it's whatever is going to be involved uh in fighting it's already committed yeah it's already committed or about to be committed i think that um in when it comes to things like air defense, that look, the important conversation to have here is that first, Ukrainian forces have to attempt this without air superiority or any kind of air power advantage, right? This is very difficult. Western militaries typically expect to attain air superiority right. first. And combined arms maneuver, surprising, unsurprisingly, is a lot easier, Brian, if you have air yeah, superiority <laughs> and the majority advantage of fires based on the air domain, right. right? So that helps. The United States is principally an expeditionary aerospace power, and so we're, we're used to fighting this way. The second is that we have a very, very significant uh, sort of two-to-tail ratio in terms of logistical availability for our formations that the Ukrainian military won't have. It doesn't have American logistics either. That's also an important point. So it's much harder to prosecute an offensive operation as opposed to maintaining a defense as well, right? The, the, uh, the bigger, the bigger, the scope of the offensive operation, the harder it is logistically to sustain, especially even if you, if you have advances or breakthroughs, right? And then on, on the whole, I think there, there are two issues here. There's a deficit of capability in some areas. There's a deficit, particularly in enablers, which, which is 
a lot of the capabilities that you would need other than the armored fighting vehicles, you know, or the artillery. Uh, we have issues of breaching equipment, communications, electronic warfare. There's a pretty intense drone fight taking place with a lot of FPV uh, drones, one-way attack drones, crisscrossing the battlefield. And there's a lot taking place that we only see small reflections of, and we can't tell the rate of attrition on both sides from these exchanges. So, so there's, I, th I think after the first week and a half, this has settled a bit into an attritional fight with steady advances by Ukrainian forces. And that's why I'm very reticent to issue any kind of judgment on how it's going yet, because I realize right. we're not seeing what's happening. Right. Um, yeah, we're, we, you know, we, we always want to select for territory trading hands because it's the one thing we can see, Brian, but it's not necessarily yeah. the thing, the thing right. that, to focus on. Okay. Um, I hope I hope that was at least a partial answer. Yeah, no, I, no, that's no, that's that 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 that's that's helpful. Um, I mean, you before we move into the second section, I just wanted to get your thoughts. On, I mean, you you've been one of the more cautious and sober analysts on this. Um, you're you're not one who is prone to irrational exuberance. Um, uh, even after big successes by such as Arkiv and Ersan. Um, what is your realistic best case outcome for Ukraine on this? What would yeah. be on the optimistic side of Michael Kaufman's assessment of this? Is his traditionally very cautious assessment of this? Right. By the way, after Hakim and Kirsan, you saw what happened. Yeah. Right. I mean, I hope folks remember kind of the last six months of the war. That after Hakim and Kirsan, things looked really optimistic. The Russian military was very weak, very vulnerable heading into the winter, but. Due to, due to the state of forces, weather conditions, and other things, the Ukrainian military was not in a good position to take advantage of that opportunity itself. And it right. led to a prolonged period of very ugly attritional fighting with significant loss on both sides, obviously more Russian than Ukrainian, but still. Uh, it led to uh, this, this I, I think, a really challenging uh period in the war that now Ukraine is trying to break out with, with an offensive that hopefully hopefully will have a, a, a strategic impact on the course of the war. But, you know, my position, I wrote an article, I think it was a month ago with Rob Lee in Foreign Affairs, basically explaining that we need to not suffer from short-termism, that however this offensive goes in the best case scenario, it's not going to end the war. We have to invest in the long-term rather than taking a wait-and-see approach. When you take a wait-and-see approach, first, you already doom the situation to some period of attritional fighting that will follow this offensive because none of the equipment or the ammunition or other things you'd need to have in place are going to be there when this offensive ends. Let's say this offensive runs its course and is very successful by end of July or end of August, what have you. Right. What follows that? What, what happens after that? And... Is Ukraine going to be in a position to continue pressuring Russian forces through the fall before the winter gets there? Or is this really, or is this potentially the main operation of the year and the Ukraine military will not be in a position to conduct another major operation until spring of next year? But right. in between those periods, Russia may conduct another mobilization. It may pursue another winter offensive. Right, Brian? I'm, I'm not saying it's to be pessimistic. I'm just... No, no, that, that, that's, that's what makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've and we already seen this before. I'm not telling you something that you haven't seen already in the right. sport, right? Um, so best case scenario, I think, 
And well, I don't say let's suppose it's not the best case scenario. It's one scenario. I, I don't want to say best case scenario because I don't genuinely know what Ukrainian plans are at this point. I think that's by design. And they're trying to do a good job of disguising with objectivists so they can stay flexible and they can uh, pick the axis they want to push, if that makes sense. Right. Rather than being rather than being pinned to a specific plan that either succeeds or fails in that set. So with that in mind, I think probably one of the better scenarios is that we have a period of attritional fighting where Ukrainian forces make steady gains, substantially degrade Russian defenses and Russia's ability to maintain a defense, and are able to advance not just on one axis, but along at least two axes towards the main line of Russian defenses. Okay. And at a certain point, then Ukraine commits the bulk of its forces. It's able to breach the main Russian line. The Russian military doesn't have a sufficient amount of reserves available to counter. And here's an important caveat. And Ukraine has enough left in the tank to exploit that breakthrough. Because it's not as though you break through the main line south of Ikonovasilka, and then there's nothing there, and you're basically at your objective. There's actually still quite a bit of terrain. Right. When you say in the tank, you mean artillery and manpower? Uh, what I mean, what I mean by sort of colloquially, like has enough left in the tank. What I mean is that they did not use up the brigades they need to exploit a breakthrough in order to achieve the breakthrough. Because you attain the breakthrough, Brian, and then who follows through? Right. What, what are your fresh units available to punch through? Right, and then uh, force the Russian military into a retreat or into a rout, so that you can sustain momentum. Otherwise, you achieve a breakthrough, but you're exhausted. And then the line, you push back Russian lines, but you push them back to a point, and then they recover, and then they dig back in. Because you can you can believe that what's happening right now is first they're engaged in a lot of additional mining, including distance mining, right? That is using uh, systems that disperse minefields. And second, that they're digging, Russian engineers are undoubtedly right now digging additional lines and reserve lines where they where they see the main thrust of the Ukraine attack. So you need to, that's the challenge. You need to not just be able to break through, but you not use up all your combat power in breaking through. So once you break through, you can actually exploit it, and then you're able to liberate significant amounts of territory. Well, that makes sense. So, yeah, no, that makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. And, and by the way, if you listen to this one, it sounds daunting. That's why I said the offense is a lot harder than the defense. Well, and also Ukraine's trying to do something that's never, to my, I mean, I don't want to say never, but rarely done, and that's con con conduct a combined arms operation without air superiority, as you as you, as you noted earlier. That's uh, that that's that's uh, if they pull this off, it'll be pretty damn impressive, I guess, is what I'm gathering as as I'm listening to you. And here's what I'll do: it's been done. Certainly, Ukraine has had more successes in, in this area in prior offensives, but it is uh, damn difficult and. It would be difficult. It would not be easy if they had air superiority, because folks, I think, are not appreciative of the defenses that Russia has in place and how difficult combined maneuver is against a prepared defense in the first place, and kind of to break out the the logic, the gravitational pull of attrition. Um, but well, without air superiority, it is exceedingly hard. And on top of that, not just without air superiority without even effective air defense against an opponent that does have air power right. as well, on top of all the other challenges. Yes, it's not easy. And that's why I said 
the expectation was very substantial, I think, between those of us who thought that Ukraine had a decent chance of success, as I often wrote, were cautiously optimistic, but recognized that this would be very difficult mm. and didn't expect it to look like Kharkiv at the outset. And I think those that thought that this might be a lot easier. Right. All right. Well, I'm going to, in the second half, I'm going to move into the politics of this and the Moscow side. But before I do that, is there anything you want to add? Anything you think our listeners should be aware of um, as, as as this unfolds right now? Again, there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, I think the the only points I would ask first, be, as I always say, be very wary of the anchoring effect of images of combat losses that you run to the, uh, across on the internet and just not assume that that's highly representative of all the fighting that's taking place, right? Uh, second, you know, also, I think it's important to be appreciative that there's a whole part of the battlefield that we are not seeing and that the images are not necessarily representative of, of fighting across, let's say, the 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 disparate fronts uh and third i always call folks just be patient and part of the challenge with that is you know unfortunately news business needs content right so they need constant updates and assessments of what's going on but these things take time to play out be patient and uh if you're if you're following if you're following the fighting understand that as, as i as I wrote in that comment early on, it's not the sort of thing you judge in a few days, but there will come a point where it will be much easier to judge the course of this offensive, and we are just not there yet. And if you're right. wondering how will I know that we've gotten to that point, uh, my answer is going to be disappointing, which is that we'll know it when we see it. <laughs> right. No, no, yeah, yeah, no. That 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 makes sense. I mean, it's going to be a long, hot summer, and it's, we just got we got to we got to hunker down for that. That's a good segue into our second segment in a few moments we'll continue our discussion and look at developments in russia regarding the war from vladimir putin's bellicose remarks this week and the ongoing feud between the the wagner group and the russian ministry of defense i'd like to remind you you are listening to the power vertical podcast which is produced by the university of texas arlene the mcdowell center for global studies in partnership with the atlantic council i'm your host my name is brian whitmore i'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCM mcdowell center and a non-resident senior fellow at the atlantic council's eurasia center and joining us from mount vernon virginia on land once owned by george washington is military analyst michael kaufman director of the russia studies program at cna corporation a fellow at the kennan institute and a senior editor at war on the rocks michael is also so the host of the Must Listen to Podcast Russian Contingency on War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Дякую нашим хлопцям за кожен український прапор, який зараз повертається на законне місце в селах на щойно деокупованій території. So as the counteroffensive got underway in Ukraine, it's also been a fairly eventful week in Moscow. In a meeting with military correspondents and war bloggers, Vladimir Putin suggested that Russia may go on the offensive by carving out what he called a sanitary zone to prevent additional incursions into Russian territory. Putin also darkly hinted that Russia might launch a fresh push on Kiev. This looks more like a psyop to me than anything else, Michael, but leaving that aside for a moment, 
Does Russia even have the capacity for a fresh attempt to take Kyiv? And this idea of a sanitary zone, does this suggest that these incursions into Russian territory are, 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 are really uh, uh, disturbing Putin? So on the first question, no, they don't have the capacity to turn to Kyiv. On the second one, yeah, I'm sure they're disturbing Putin. I mean, they're highly embarrassing to him and the, to the state, the fact that these raids are being conducted um, from Ukraine by the Russian Volunteer Corps, by these other units. And, and to me, I mean, they clearly look like the work of Ukrainian military intelligence overall. Um, of course, they're, they're quite problematic for for his regime. That said, you know, the... The safety or security zone is clearly, by implication, he's talking about creating a buffer, and I'm not sure how they intend to do that because they're already stretched on a broad front, and I just don't think that they have the capacity to create any significant buffer between, let's say, Dolgrad and Kharkiv. I, I think there there is a chance, of course, and I would be surprised by this, that the Russian military attempts some kind of localized counterattack because they think maybe that they have the opportunity, but I doubt it's going to go anywhere because I think much of what's left in Russia's offensive potential, they had broadly misspent over the course of the winter in Kyrgyzstan's failed winter offensive. So until they conduct a, either another mobilization or have a very successful recruitment uh, drive and are also able to recover from, from whatever happens in the summer offensive, I think... But their their offensive capacity is largely spent. Maybe not for the entirety for the entirety of the year. It's hard to see that far out in the war, but definitely for the near term, as far as I can tell. Yes, some analysts have said that these cross border incursions are actually part of the overall counteroffensive strategy in an attempt to kind of spread out Russian forces and force them to commit elsewhere. And if if the creation of these so called sanitary zones might just play right into the Ukrainian strategy. No, or am I am I barking up the wrong tree there? No, yeah, I've been one of these some analysts. It sounds like a thing I might have said. So so it's clear that part of the reason they were doing them were essentially to try to extend Russian forces and try to get Russia to commit uh some part of its military to defending the border as well. And, and again, all this was designed, I think, as sort of shaping operations in the run up to the offensive in order to set more positive conditions, right? To create strain on the availability of Russian manpower because they want to minimize the forces available to defend along these main axis of advance. And they also want to strain Russian command and control under, I think, the assumption, this is the guess, right? Under the assumption that the Russian military will have a hard time managing different situations across the front if they have to deal with Tukmok the Ikonovasilka, some localized counters along the, the entirety of the line, Bakhmut, and also cross-border attacks, right? right. Their, their attention, um, that they will have challenges managing all of these at the same time. Right. No, I get the impression when Putin made that comment, the reaction of the Ukrainian defense ministry would be like, yo, please do, uh, yeah. it, it w- was, was my assessment, which, again— Again, keeps me like Putin's really seems to have lost his mojo here. Why even mention Kiev? I mean, I, I, I what, what was he? I mean, without getting into the the dark cobweb-filled space that is Putin's head. Yeah, I was gonna say. I yeah, I was issued a disclaimer. I don't live in that man's mind, and I don't want to. So, <laughs> so um, I've never written the article titled "What Putin Really Wants." So it's just not one of the. Uh, what 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 one of the accomplishments that 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 I achieved? 
for sure. But uh, um, I look, my sense is I'm returning to Kiev is he is pandering to the crowd right. of yep. nationalists and a war party who, to him, I think to them, that's basically a very loud whistle to to give them what they want, which is they want to hear about how Russia will ultimately return to Kiev, crush Zelensky, and destroy Ukrainian statehood. That's kind of what they want. Why? Well, I mean, let's be honest, Ryan, if the rest of the war is focused on them spending years trying to take uh, the rest of you know Donbass and you know, recapture the towns of Blokhodatna and Makarovka, I'm not sure that those are politically as significant gains for that community. <laughs> right, right. So, so. he's pandering. And I, that, yeah, pandering and, and a psyop. I, I, I saw, but nobody took it seriously. It's not yeah. like it ruffled any feathers when he said, we might return to Kiev, because, I mean, my question to you, does he have the capacity? It was almost rhetorical. Even right. I know he doesn't have some capacity. Um, the the other thing um, that that uh, we were looking at that, that that popped up again this week uh, the feud between Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group and the Russian Defense Ministry heated up when Prigozhin and his uh, said that his, that his Wagner fighters would not sign any contracts with the Defense Ministry. Um, Sergei Shoigu has publicly kind of said that uh, the, the Defense Ministry released a, a statement that all Wagner groups have to sign contracts with the Defense Ministry. Prigozhin is basically uh, flouting this um, and, and saying this, this this will not happen. How, how do you interpret this spat between Shoigu and Prigozhin, between the Defense Ministry and Wagner? What, what do you see going on here right now, and what are the implications of it? The continuation of that fight, I am honestly watching it with just as much interest as you are. I think that this is another standoff, as we saw back in May over Bakhmut when Prigozhin was issuing ultimatums to Shoigo. In that uh, fight, Prigozhin won. He got Sorovikin appointed as the main liaison, and right. he got the munitions he wanted. Although, it didn't look like he was that short on munitions anyway, to be honest. I couldn't, I couldn't tell what was really going on there. Uh, I think that uh, Prigozhin, just my, my own my own view, he may have, may have somewhat jumped the shark in the sense that he has taken his statements too far and clearly making or, or making oblique attacks uh, against the presidential administration. And I think, I suspect he's playing a dangerous game. That's my own view. But you're in some respects, to be honest, a better analyst of this kind of Byzantine court politics than I am. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you. I mean, I'm trying to get a get get a get 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 a grip on this because I see a couple of things going on in the Byzantine court politics, with the caveat that we don't have the visibility into it that we once had. Right? We're we're, we're looking at fewer data points. It's going back to this whole the bulldogs fighting under the carpet kind of thing. And and, and but what I see thus far in, in a macro sense is, um, and this is something Michael you actually said initially that I've kind of picked up on. Is that Putin's kind of caught between two two uh, two factions, neither of which he can please. Um, the the war bloggers and the hawks, they yeah they want nothing short of, of that military parade on the Hishatik, and you know Zelensky you know Zelensky crushed, and that's not going to happen. And the other side wants to go back to pre February twenty fourth, and that's not going to happen. And nobody's happy right now. In that environment, that leaves a lot of space for kind of court rivalries to heat up because it gives the impression that Putin's kind of lost control of uh, you know, his, his main role as the, the balancer of interests within the, within the elite. Um, now, what is Prigozhin doing? What is his 
game. I mean, we clearly have a clan battle going on between Prihojin and Shoigu, right? You also see other aligned forces on, you know, into this with Kadyrov, uh, sometimes with with Prihojin. Um, But what is everybody's game here? That's really hard to to to, to kind of map out. Um, what I mean is, what is Prihojin's end game here? I don't know. I honestly don't. I can throw some some thoughts, but just to be clear, I uh, I often uh, discount or let's say try to caveat anything I say by by making it making it known that I'm not uh, primarily a political analyst, and so I don't I often I often debate these things with myself and hold multiple ideas at the same time in my own head about what this is. So one is that Prigozhin clearly has political ambitions, yep. and he has. Uh, standard, I want a piece of the slice, um, Russian uh, patronage network style ambitions, right? Which is, I think, partly he wants to create, you know, every, everybody, somebody has a Rosneft, somebody has a Gazprom, show you as Ministry of Defense. I think Prigozhin wanted to turn Wagner into some version of like Rosvatnikprom or something like that, right? right? Uh, it's sort of like his old thing. Yeah, yeah, because they actually make a lot of money in Middle East and Africa and right. other places, Brian. And yeah, he wanted, I, I don't have a good way to put it, but it's something like that. Right. Um, and then he has some political ambitions as well. I think he kind of, I think some of it is he maybe wants, this, people are going to giggle at me, I say so you'd be upfront. Right? I'm not claiming I know what I'm talking about in the score, but he wants to be kind of like, the the anti Navalny, the Navalny for this ultra right party of war, right? This well, kind yeah, of this kind of, he wants to be the successor. Uh, yeah, yeah, this kind of character, and I think with regard to Putin being stuck between uh, these these two groups, the way I look at it today is that Putin figured out very quickly that uh, sort of the economically liberal or the anti-war group politically doesn't matter. They have no political cachet or relevance. All right. And so he can, he can generally ignore that the party that does matter, right. is principally the party of war. His problem is that he can't actually give them what they want because he can't get them back to Kiev or, or to Kharkiv or even to Sumy. And it's not clear that he's going to be able to, you know, get them back to Makarovka the way things are the way things are going. So, I think that's probably the challenge from the right is the one that he has to manage the most. And Prigozhin and Shoigu to some extent play into that challenge, right? Because if Prigozhin is trying to position himself as somebody who's capturing that, I'm not yet clear what Prigozhin's argument is and whether Prigozhin wants to be another Shoigu and if he's trying to present himself as a person. That would be a good replacement for Shogu. I think the problem Prigozhin has fundamentally, if that's what he wants to do, is that this regime doesn't really give anybody up in a sense that, right. you know, Brian, who's been fired for incompetence in Putin's regime in over 20 <laughs> years? It's like maybe two people that have ever been fired, right. here, like removed uh, principally for incompetence. Second, uh, it, it takes care of the people that are seen as loyal. Right. Even if they're not good at whatever it is they do. And so for Putin to somehow replace or get rid of Shoigu, it would be a very interesting sign within the system at a time that the regime probably is going to be focused on maintaining stability. I don't think it'd be a great sign right. within that work system for something to happen to Shoigu. Because I think most of the people in that system assume that they have top cover by virtue of their continued loyalty, not by virtue of the fact that they were good at their jobs. Right. 
Right. No, and I mean, again, with this, it, it, it kind of highlights that Putin does appear to be losing control of his court. Um, and that I think the macro cause of that is that scheme that we both kind of see with the kind of him caught between these these two groups. And he cannot give the one group that matters what it wants. Um, I guess bringing this back full circle, kind of back to uh, uh, turning the politics analysis into into military analysis. What do these schisms you see um, that we all see? Um, what do they do to Russia's warfighting capability? Well, you know, specifically on the, on the Bakhmut axis, it created a lot of problems, I thought, throughout the winter and especially in the spring. But it was specific to that axis. And what I, what I saw their challenge was that there was no unity of effort and no unity of command, lots of infighting between the, the two forces. There's a general resentment and um, uh, between the regular Russian military and Wagner. Both of them think that they're better than, than the other force involved. Even though they have to work, to, they have to work together there, and so you see that this created this created real problems for them when Ukraine military was trying to take advantage of the opportunity it posed back in May. Now, is that the same story on other parts of the front? Uh, my answer to that is probably not. But the Russian military in general is a variegated force, and there are a lot of challenges with uh, the LDNR units that are subordinate to the combined arms armies there to the mobilized regiments to the various volunteer battalions that have been created to the storm battalions that are composed of convicts right and the some of the pmc groups that have sort of sprawl been spawned alongside wagner although wagner is the main kind of pmc force there are others so what does it do it well obviously it creates creates problems um so far, though, I think my view is it's a bit too early to see a larger, more systemic impact from this. And also in terms of the political infighting, I think it goes to what what scholars like Tim Fry would, used to write. It was a book, you know, uh, titled Weak Strongman, that showing that Putin is actually rather weak as a strongman and that, you know, he's, he's as much subject to the politics of his own court and the infighting amongst the elites and these various clans as he tries to appear to actually be in charge of it or the arbitrator of it. I think it's only going to get worse. I think that said, most Russian elites probably are of the mind that as long as the war goes on, they're much better off with Putin than with anything else. And I hold to the opinion that most of Putin's real problems begin the way this, the day this war ends or is perceived yeah. to have ended in, in a meaningful way. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And that it kind of leads me to my the, my big known unknown here uh, is what does Prigozhin know? What does he see that we're not seeing that is leading him to behave this way? He obviously sees something and knows something that is leading him to the conclusion that this type of behavior, challenging the defense ministry in such an open and brazen way, is somehow profitable and lucrative to him. I just don't see what that thing is right now. That's 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 my big... The other thing, the other big takeaway right now is watching the way this elite's behaving, it does not look to me like an elite that expects to win this war. Any last thoughts on that before we wrap it up? I think that uh, what Prigozhin probably knows is that Shugu's a lot weaker politically than he looks. I think that Prigozhin assumes he has some degree of top cover and he's pushing to see how much that how much that affords him. 
right? Mm-hmm. I think what Prigozhin probably sees is that, you know, Russia is a system of informal rules. The laws don't matter. What matter are the informal codes of conduct, right? And and the only way you know they've changed is when somebody is, gets arrested for a thing that previously was allowable, right? right. Somebody, suddenly, suddenly somebody's yeah. arrested for corruption exactly. that before exactly. was exactly. the thing exactly. they were all doing. And then they find out that it turns out this activity is now verboten, right? That's how they know that the that the that the non-statutory code has changed, so to speak. Right. Um, and I think Prigozhin probably senses that in a time of war, uh, there is a lot more freedom, and there's a potential that many of these rules have been loosened for people like him, who are principally nobodies before this role war. Who is Prigozhin to Shoigu, or to Sachin, or to any of these? Um, to any of these people, like uh, Brian, well, he was a member of Putin's court. I mean, he was he 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 did have a yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't in the innermost inner circle, which is he was a pretty right. small bit player in Putin's court compared to these other people, right? right. So he probably sells his opportunity. Um, but he let's be frank, he might also be grossly he might also be grossly miscalculated, right? And a year from now, we'll be reading about how he was at a cafe for some reception and a bust of him exploded, for all we know. Right. It's right. like that 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 seems to that seems to happen with greater frequency in Russia. I'm not saying it's gonna happen to him. He's clearly acting as though he's confident won't, but just being just being frank, it might. Uh yeah, I think I think the it's become a lot a lot more difficult to to see to see with any clarity what's yep. happening. In that system, no, it's a it's a frustrating time for a political analysts like myself who like to watch the the workings of the court. Um, again, we we kind of had to go back to we got spoiled in the '90s and the aughts, uh, basically because uh, we actually had sources and, and and could see things going on. Now we got to go back to our grandfather's Kremlinology in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and by the way, some of us used to be used to even be able to go to Russia back in the like, day. Right. I've recently joined. Uh, the hallowed halls of those who could formally sanction. Oh, oh, they finally sanctioned you? What took them so yeah. long? Well, I think it was backlog. They had a very long list that I was right. on. I think, right. I think, <laughs> I think, I think what took them so long is, you know, Russian bureaucracy is known for many things, but efficiency is not one of them. Oh, there's several people that have been sanctioned several times, which I also kind of found found amusing. Well, that I'm looking at the clock. We're bumping up against the end, uh, so that's a good place to wrap it up. That's we, all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, I've been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program from the CNOA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rock. Michael's also the host of the must-listen uh, podcast, Russian Contingency on War on the Rocks. And again, happy birthday, Michael. Thanks for an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Yeah, thanks for the commentation. Great to be uh, back here talking with you again. Great to have you. Also, like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Girl Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 